Well, what a great time it is for us this morning to once again open the Word of God together. I want to ask you to take your Bibles with me and open them to Romans chapter 14. It's been a little while since we've been there. Uh, last week we took a little detour to talk about some other things on my own heart and uh, from the Word of God, but it's my desire this morning to try to finish up Romans chapter 14 together. We'll see how that goes. I think we can do this. We are, as you know, returning to our study of how it is we are to live. How it is we are to live, or how it is we are to behave. Behavior seems to be on the minds of many people around our country these days. Uh, We are, once again, returning to that for the Christian, how we are to act. Specifically, when it comes to areas and decisions in our own life by which we are not specifically or directly prohibited from doing them in Scripture. No commands are given to us by way of prohibition by which we can do what certain decisions and certain activities. We often hear of these referred to as gray area issues, or as some commentators say, matters of indifference. Matters of indifference. We might even attach the word from time to time to these kinds of things as preference, but I want to uh, define that a little bit for us. So let's begin our time this morning by just listening, listening to the Word of God in our own ears and allow His Word to begin to work on us. Beginning in verse 13, as the Apostle Paul really concludes this entire section. Verse 13, Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but to him who thinks anything to be unclean, To him it is unclean. For if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what is for you a good thing be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are clean, but they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. It is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or anything by which your brother stumbles. The faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. For happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because... His eating is not from faith. Whatever is not from faith is sin. These are very penetrating words. Very penetrating reality in our hearts and minds when we think about it. Because when we think carefully through what Paul is saying, it is a very clarifying passage, particularly when we understand that one of the implications that the Apostle Paul is making is that not all things are necessarily matters of indifference. Not all things are necessarily gray area issues. And I want to be careful here because I don't want any of us to be confused about this matter or about this teaching. So let me say it again. Not everything that we do, not everything that we say necessarily falls into the area of being a gray issue. 
Why do I say that? Because Paul is speaking about decisions. He is speaking specifically about decisions and actions that are in and of themselves non-issues. In and of themselves, they are amoral issues. In other words, they have no sense in which in and of themselves they are sinful. They aren't necessarily sinful things, but they are being elevated as spiritual necessities for spiritual living or things that are being used for evaluating the spiritual maturity or even the spiritual reality of someone's Christianity. In other words, Paul is addressing what he is addressing here in Romans 14 are the use of matters of indifference, the use of amoral issues and viewing them as spiritual requirements. That's what he's addressing. Now, let me be clear. That can be just about anything. That can be just about anything that's not prohibited by Scripture can be one of these areas, can be one of these issues. It can be food. It can be drink, as Paul is addressing here. It can be special days or days that are considered to be special, like Paul speaks about here in Romans chapter 14. But it can also be other things. It can be movies that you watch. It can be the kind of games that you play. It can be the people that you hang around with. It can be items for daily health. It can be anything not specifically prohibited by Scripture, but it isn't always that those things are gray area issues. And it seems to me, from the context of this passage, that what determines whether it is a gray issue or not is how that issue is being viewed by the person who is using it. Let me say also that if it is not viewed as a spiritual requirement, It is not viewed as if it is some evaluatory stance based upon someone's own spirituality as they view others' spirituality, then whatever it is that they are doing falls into the category of preference. Preference. Now let's take that thought and that understanding and bring ourselves back into the book of Romans, right here in chapter 14, because what Paul is addressing here and who he is talking to are Christians. These are saved people. These are people who have professed faith in Jesus Christ. These are people who already know the Lord. They are growing in their Christian life. They are walking by faith in God. And yet, they are viewing some, some are viewing foods and certain days to amoral things, to things that aren't in and of themselves sinful, but they are viewing them as if they were a must for Christian living. In other words, to be a Christian or to be a good Christian, this is what you must eat, and this is the days you must celebrate. For you to be known as a Christian, for you to be a mature Christian, for you to be a right Christian, these are what you must eat or must not eat, and this is the days you must celebrate or not celebrate. And what elevated them to fit this gray area context was that some Christians were judging other Christians' spiritual lives through how they viewed those things in their own conscience and therefore in their own Christian lives. That is simply to say that many Christians have different views of an innumerable amount of things. We sit in this room, all 118 of us up here. If there's that many, there only should be that many. If there's more than that, go downstairs, please. And the rest who are watching... 
We sit here and we have an innumerable amount of views on innumerable amount of things, subjects that are not prohibited by Scripture, decisions and activities that we make that do not fall into gray area issues. They do not fall into that because they are not used by you to view others' spiritual condition through that and through the understanding of those decisions and activity. Therefore, they do not fall into that. They are what I call personal preferences. Let me just give you an example. Let's just say, for argument's sake, that I like a certain type of music. And quite possibly, quite possibly my liking for a certain genre of music is music that someone else might consider to be unprofitable for a Christian. Now, the assessment of that, we can have a discussion about, we can talk about. That's for a whole nother sermon. That's not for this sermon. But let's just say for argument's sake, one person likes this, and it's me, and another person thinks that's unprofitable for a Christian. But let's say that you, being the person who believes it's unprofitable, you catch wind that that's the music I like, that that's the music that I listen to from time to time. And because of your own upbringing and because of your own background and because of what you bring in to your salvation from your own pagan life, that you would never listen to that kind of music. And in your mind, it's devil music. And since that's your view, you begin to judge my spirituality by that view. You see, that's what we're talking about. That's the kind of stuff we're talking about here. I'm not advocating for a certain kind of music or not. We can have discussions on what is good, what is best, and what is the best. We can, we can talk about all that. I'm not, I'm not discussing it. I'm just talking about how you view someone else because of the decisions they make. That's the kind of thing that happens all the time in the church. It happens all the time in Christendom. Any number of all moral issues are used in that way. Why? Because we're all in a different place. We're all growing on this road called sanctification. We're all growing in our understanding of this gift of salvation that we have been given and what that actually means by way of the outworking of it in our life. This faith in Jesus Christ that is transforming our life in each and every way in how we think and how we act. It's renewing, as Paul said in Romans 12.1, renewing our mind as we're saturated by the Word of God. And that is affecting our lives and changing our lives and changing how we think and, and what we're doing. And so we're all in a different place as we live by our faith. But listen, if you begin to judge my spiritual condition through my view of music, then what has happened is that you have made music, and specifically a certain type of music, a spiritual condition of true Christianity. That if people aren't listening to the kind of music that you approve of and only the kind that you approve of, then they must be less spiritually than you are. In other words, you've taken what is a preference and you've moved it into a spiritual requirement category for good and proper Christian living. And that's what Paul's dealing with here in Romans chapter 14. He's addressing activities and decisions that are being used as spiritual markers. Spiritual markers in the eyes of some. Like I said, this can be true of anything. It can be true of anything not specifically prohibited by Scripture. As Christians, we can easily make, and, and, and if we're honest with ourselves, we realize this about our own hearts. We can easily make, and we often do more subtly than we'd like to admit. We often make and raise our own comfortabilities and our own preferences to a level of spiritual requirement for everybody else. And we suddenly begin to look at others through those lenses. And when we do that, 
We've stepped outside the pages of Scripture, as one of my seminary profs used to say. We step outside the leather, means outside the cover of the Scriptures, and we step into our own rule of Phariseeism. Beloved, that's what was happening in the church in Rome. That's what Paul's cautioning about. That's what was rampant in the church in Corinth. And it happens in every church, sadly. Personal preferences get elevated to the level of spiritual requirements. And so Paul begins by laying down this very helpful solution. This very helpful solution. And it's right here. It's It's like right in our face. It's so clear we cannot miss it. So let's get ready for this because it's so straightforward. Are you ready? Here's what he says, verse 13. Stop judging one another anymore. There it is. I don't know how anybody could read this passage and and miss that. It's right there. This is the central issue at hand. You notice it isn't that we should not judge someone. It isn't even that we must change our views on our moral issues. Paul doesn't say any of that. He's not even implying that in some personal way that we are in some neutral position in ourselves And in the spur of the moment, as we look at life and as we go through life in these little spurs of the moment, we somehow decide to enter into this judgmental position of another person and their spiritual condition. Paul doesn't even imply that. No, Paul says that this is constantly what we're already doing. It's not that we're outside of that and we enter into it or that we should not judge. He says, that's what you are doing constantly. And we shouldn't be doing it, he says. In other words, when we view our position as the required spiritual position, guess what? We're already judging others. And we need to stop. So Paul's saying, therefore, In light of all that I've said in verses 1 to 12, therefore, let us not judge one another anymore. Stop doing it. Listen, if our response to what others are doing when it comes to issues that are not prohibited by Scripture is, I can't believe that you would do that. If that's our response in our heart as we look at other people, then that is an indicator that we are looking at others' spiritual condition through our preferences. Let me say that again. If we, in our response to what others are doing, when it comes to these issues that are not prohibited by Scripture, is... I can't believe they do that. Then that's an indicator that we're looking at other spiritual condition through our own preferences. Now, certainly what someone may be doing may not be the best. It may not be profitable for their spiritual lives as we understand the Word of God let alone their physical lives. And when that happens, we need as Christians to come together with a humble attitude and have a humble discussion about those kinds of things. We need to come with a desire to understand what the Scriptures teach. But we have to remove a heart and a mind that is judgmental. The first place to start is to realize that it's there. The first place to begin to remove a judgmental heart is to realize it's latent right there behind every preference you have. It's laying there waiting to strike. And it's there with all of us. 
And this is why Paul says it the way he says it. Stop judging one another anymore. Listen, this needs to be one of, if not the driving principle when it comes to the gray issues of life. This needs to be the driving principle. Here it is. Be inward looking before you're outward looking. Be inward looking before you ever start to be outward looking. Listen, we're all fed up to our eyeballs with what we see happening in our nation. We are fed a constant diet of negative nonsense. And yet much of the struggle that we see happening right now is that very issue going on. Everyone is looking outward and saying, you're the problem with me. The reason I have a problem is because of you. No one's taking personal responsibility for themselves. No one's owning responsibility for their own life. No, it's always someone else. It's someone else's fault. The troubles in my life are not my troubles. You caused them and therefore you must pay for them. Suddenly we bring that into the church. The Bible says no, 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 no. First, be introspective. Stop looking at others. Look at your own view first. Look at your own view first. And we know, we, we know this well as Christians. We know it well from Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 7, right? As a, a leader in the church, I, I, I'm... I'm struck by this passage very often because anytime anytime the church in sadness has to bring someone up in church discipline oftentimes this passage is thrown in their face Matthew chapter 7 they they bring this up 7 verse 1 do not judge lest you be judged in other words as if holding people accountable to the reality of their own Christian life by way of what the Scripture says is a judgmental thing. Don't ever judge sin. That's the idea that they're bringing. That's not what Jesus is implying at all. Jesus is implying simply this. Don't use your standard as the standard for spiritual life. Don't use your standard as the standard for spiritual living. You realize Jesus is talking to the entire world here? He's not just addressing Christians here. In fact, he's pointedly directing this at the religious leaders of the day. Matthew 7, 1 to 5, Do not judge so that you will not be judged, for in the way you judge, you will be judged, and by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye? Why are you outward looking, but don't notice the log that's in your own eye? Why don't you see the inward reality? You're looking outward and you're holding people accountable according to the standard you've created and you've made, but you're unwilling to look at yourself. How can you say to your brother, verse 4, let me take the speck out of your eye and behold... The log's in your own eye. This is the problem in our country. How can you say everybody else is accountable? You haven't even looked at yourself. It's the same problem with the Christian. Jesus says, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. You see, that's the principle that's being exhorted in Romans chapter 14. Be inward looking before you ever start outward looking. You want to deal with issues in the church that are gray issues? You want to deal with preference issues that are elevated to the place of spiritual judgment? You want to stop judging someone anymore? Then look inwardly before you ever start looking outwardly. You see, the tendency of the sinful heart is to believe that its spiritual position is the strong in the faith position. 
When it comes to Christians, it's easy for us in our life to get very comfortable in how we're living and what we're doing, the decisions we're making, and be convinced in our own sinful heart that that our spiritual position is the strong in the faith position. And it may very well be. But it's so easy to convince ourselves, even when it's not. Whatever decision I make, how I live is the best way. After all, as a Christian who understands the gospel, it's the way of Christian freedom. I'm not bound by anything. I'm free in Christ. We're not bound to enter salvation by doing things. Other people would just simply get on board with my thinking and my understanding, and everything would be great. You see, that's, that's Satan's lie. That's the undermining reality of the church. Satan would love to destroy the church for all of us to think our way is the highway. Boy, the church would be great if everybody was just like me. That's not the view we're to have when it comes to issues and decisions not prohibited by Scripture. That's not the view we're to have of one another when it comes to those issues of matters of indifference. We're to stop looking at others and rather begin to look at ourselves and ensure that what we do doesn't have a spiritually negative effect upon other spiritual lives. You see, we're to be inwardly looking and saying, okay, what I do, what I say, the decisions I make, is there a negative spiritual effect happening upon other spiritual lives because of what I'm doing? Notice how Paul says this. Notice what he says in verse 13. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather, okay, here's the opposite, determine this. You want to make a judgment? Paul's not saying judging is wrong in the sense of making a discerning, thoughtful, thought-out decision. That's what the idea of judge here is in the word crino. You want to make a decision? All right, make this decision. Here's the decision you make. Instead of judging others like you're doing, determine this in yourself. Make this judgment that you will not put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. He goes on to explain what that is in the verses that follow. We'll look at that in just a minute. Right? You can see here what normally happens. We just go about living in our view, living in our little bubble And we don't actually care about others. I'm going to do what I'm going to do because my Christian freedom allows me to do it. And in fact, we spiritually judge them as immature in the faith. We might even go so far as to say, well, they don't live like me. They're unsaved. They don't have spiritual maturity. They must not know Christ. Because if they're so immature, they wouldn't live like that. But Paul says, as an actual mature Christian, instead of that kind of thinking, instead of being like that in your own mind, strive in your life to not be a spiritual stumbling block or obstacle in their life. Paul says, think about what you're doing and its potential effect upon what others might do. Now, what does he mean? What does he mean by that? What is the spiritual obstacle? What is the stumbling block that maybe I'm causing? Well, again, from the context here, it is that the other person, i.e. the weak in the faith person, begins to actually think in their own mind that they actually are a lesser Christian. That because of your view and because of your actions, as they look at their own life and their own immaturity and their own weakness of faith, they think, well, I must be a lesser of a Christian. And then they begin to convince themselves that they should be doing what you're doing because they see you as a mature Christian. And since you're the mature Christian and they have convinced themselves in their own mind their weakness, and so they begin to adjust their life to be just like yours. And yet, 
They do it for all the wrong reasons. Remember, these are all moral issues. These aren't sinful. And yet they do it for all the wrong reasons. They don't even know why they're doing it. They don't know why they're acting the way they're acting or doing the what they're doing. They're just watching you. In other words, the obstacle, the stumbling block, is that as we live with others, as we live with one another, we are actually working to bring others to our position without them understanding why. Without them understanding why we do what we do. With no thought of their conscience at all. And in doing that, that becomes a stumbling block in their life. It becomes a hindrance to their growth in their Christianity. In other words, the reality is, according to what Paul is saying, is the very thing we hope for does the very opposite. The very thing, because we're exercising our Christian freedoms and our own preferences the way we want with no thought of anybody else, and we think everybody else should live like that, what we hope would happen actually does the very opposite. It helps others who are weaker in the faith to misdefine and misrepresent what it means to be a mature Christian. Why? Because they do what you do without understanding why. They don't know why. That is simply to say that my attempts to convince them by my actions goes against their conscience. And it becomes a cause for them to fall, as verse 13 says. They stumble over it. It's an obstacle in their way. They fall, meaning that by my actions, with no consideration for them, I have single-handedly distorted their understanding of what salvation means. I've single-handedly undermined what Christian living actually means. Why? Because of what I'm doing? No, because I haven't looked inwardly before I've thought about outward actions, and which means I haven't considered anybody else. I've only thought about me. Jesus warned the disciples about this. He warned them as he referred to the world and its confusion about salvation. Go there for a moment, Matthew chapter 17. Fascinating, fascinating reality, what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about this whole spiritual condition, how someone is saved, the distortion of the gospel. The world is full of distortions of the gospel. This idea that you can get saved by just doing that the Christian life is, is a, a certain picture of doing certain things, that if you're doing certain things, then you must be a mature Christian. And Jesus is talking about these things over and over and over and over again with the people, and specifically with the disciples as they learn about what Christian living is. Matthew chapter 17, beginning in verse 24, when they had come to Capernaum, those who had collected the two drachma tax came to Peter. So the tax collectors come to Peter. These are people who aren't saved. Uh, They want to find trouble. They come to Peter and they say to him, does your teacher not pay the two drachma tax? Does your teacher not follow the law, the governing authority? Does he not do that? Peter says, yes. And so when he comes into the house, Jesus speaks to Peter first saying, obviously Christ is omniscient. He knows what went on, even though he wasn't there in the conversation. He says to Peter, hey, what do you think? What do you think, Peter? From whom do the kings of the earth collect customs and poll tax? From their sons or from strangers? In other words, who, who, what's this tax for? This isn't just a general tax that ever been in the country. This, this is, hey, you're passing through. You got to pay this entrance fee. 
Who, who pays that? Is it, is it the people who live in that place or is it strangers? And Peter says, from strangers. Jesus says to him, okay, the sons are exempt then. Right? The sons are exempt. That, that's really the idea. The sons are exempt, implying we're sons. We're exempt from this. This is our freedom. We shouldn't have to pay this. But, verse 27, lest we give them offense. The implication here is not that they'll be offended by what we're not doing. The implication is we're sending the wrong message if we don't do it. We're sending the wrong message about what Christianity is to these unsaved people if we don't comply. We're giving them a picture of Christianity that isn't right. Lest we give them offense, go to the sea, throw in a hook, take the fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you'll find a star, a statter. Take that. Give it to them for you and for me. Peter, go, go do this. I'm miraculously going to make this fish bite your hook. In fact, you won't be fishing. This will be catching. Because fishing's all guesswork, but Jesus had a perfect fish with money in its mouth to give to Peter. I, I remember that commercial on TV now. There's that girl that's fishing off the back of the boat, and she catches the goldfish, you know. Got a goldfish, Dad. And he goes, oh, we're going to be, this is the, here's the goldfish. Peter, go get the fish, take the money, give it to them. Why? So we won't give them the wrong idea about what Christianity actually is. Yeah, we have the freedom to not do this. We're sons. But we don't want to give them the right, the wrong idea. Notice how this is followed up in chapter 18. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called the child to himself, and he set him before them. And he said, truly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child. Jesus is not saying that all children there immediately, they just, you know, go to heaven. He's saying, listen, this is, this is the picture in a child. He's using this child as an illustration of humility, of absolute trust. My wife and I were out on a walk yesterday. We saw two young little girls with their grandmother. And I said, little kids are just so trusting. So trusting. This is the idea. He who humbles himself like this. He who's got that kind of internal reality going on. It's not about outwardness at all. It's internal. He's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives such a child in my name receives me. He's not talking about the child. This is the humility reality. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble. There's that same word. Whoever causes one of these little ones who is my children to, to get the wrong idea, to, to have their spiritual life upended, have the wrong idea about what Christianity means, it's better for him that he have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and he be drowned in the depths of the sea. Jesus takes this reality of causing each other to stumble very, very seriously. Notice verse 7, woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks. world's full of things that misdefine Christianity, that you can have a works righteousness, all this kind of nonsense. Woe to them, for it's inevitable. It's inevitable stumbling blocks come, but woe to that man through whom the stumbling block comes. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. Throw it, throw it away from you. It's better for you to enter life crippled and lame than to have two hands and two feet yet be cast into eternal fire. Jesus goes on with that graphic illustration. The eyes. So see that you don't despise one of these little ones. See, the idea of despising is, the, is fit in with this reality of causing stumbling block. Isn't that exactly what Paul said in Romans chapter 14, verse 1? Don't despise others. Stop judging others. But 
For the Son of Man has come to save that which is lost. So listen, beloved, if you know that someone is weak in the faith, if you know someone is immature in their understanding of what Christianity is, what salvation means, what righteous living means, then why would you participate? Why would you make the decision to do something, to operate in some amoral issue that's questionable that might somehow damage or confuse their understanding? Why would you do that? That's what Paul's saying here in Romans chapter 14. Notice verse 14 to 17. I know and I'm convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in it itself. Paul's saying, listen, I know that these issues are all moral. They're not unclean. In other words, they're not profane. They're not, they're not considered as vessels of dishonor as it was in the Old Testament where there were those things that were for holy use and those things that were for common use. That's the idea. I know that nothing's com- no, no thing is just common. It's not common. But to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it's unclean. In other words, his conscience is on him. So if because of food your brother is hurt, hurt how? Stumbling, an obstacle in his way, then you're no longer walking according to love. Don't destroy with your food. We can just put Christian freedom there. Don't destroy with your preferences or your Christian freedoms him for whom Christ died. Do not let what is for you a good thing be spoken of as evil, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking. It isn't made up of those things. It isn't if you do those things, you're more righteous, and if you don't do them, you're less righteous. It's not made up of that. No, it's righteousness. Righteousness in Christ. Peace in Christ. Joy in Christ through and in the Holy Spirit. So here we are. Here we are once again faced with loving each other. Loving each other. Right? That's what he says. If you do this and it's to their hurt, you're no longer walking in love. This is exactly how Paul started in chapter 12. Right? Verse 9. Love be, let it be without hypocrisy. Let love be without hypocrisy. You say, well, what does that look like? Well, he says in verse 10, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. It looks like a devotion to one another, a devotion to interact, a devotion to think of, a devotion to put others above yourself. He lists several ways in which that is manifested. Right? Be devoted in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Practice hospitality, verse 13. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and curse not. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Don't be haughty in your own mind, but associate with the lowly. Don't be wise in your own estimation. You see, he goes on and on. If possible, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. And then, then in chapter 13, he teaches us how to respond to governing authority. With the same kind of mindset, the same kind of love, the same kind of looking inward before we look outward, just as Jesus did in Matthew 17. And then after he talks about the governing authorities, in verse 8, he turns right around and begins to speak to us again about love. Right? Verse 8, Owe nothing to anyone except love one another. Chapter 13, verse 8. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery. Why? Because that means I don't love the person that I'm with. I don't love them or I'd not do that. Don't commit adultery. You shall not murder. Jesus said, don't even hate someone in your heart because that's where murder comes from. So don't do that. You shall not steal. Don't take from somebody else. You shall not covet, right? Don't, don't, don't always go around saying, I want what they have. I'm going to work to get what they have. 
there's any other commandment, it's summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You see, there's the expression of love. Why? Because love does no wrong to a neighbor, verse 10 says. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. So, Paul says in this, doing, knowing the time. Right? Love that way because you know that any moment Christ can return. We talked about that in depth when we were there. Verse 13, therefore, let us behave properly as in the day. Right? As if Christ were there right now. Not in carousing, not in drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity, not in sensuality, not in strife, not in jealousy. No. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to what it wants. It's strong desires. Don't do that. Don't let your Christian freedoms own you. You own them. So by the time you get to chapter 14... Paul says, now accept one another who is w- the, the one who is weak in the faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. He's sh- simply showing us another manifestation of proper love for one another. Love properly. Love devotingly. So when it comes to the issues of exercising our Christian freedoms based upon our understanding of salvation, that means how someone is saved and how they live that to the glory of God, then don't don't run roughshod over someone else's conscience. Don't run roughshod over their conscience. Care for their conscience. That's what love does. Love cares for their conscience. You say, Pastor, well, that's fine. I hear you say care for their conscience, but I don't see Paul saying that anywhere in Romans chapter 14. Why do you keep saying that? Because the same author wrote to the Corinthians. And the principle is the same here in Romans chapter 14 as it is in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Paul says, listen, we are, in fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, I'll just go there for a moment so we can hear it. We are to care for the conscience of our brothers and sisters. I don't want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, all ate of the spiritual food, all drank of the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from the spiritual rock which followed them. The rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now these things happened as examples for us, that we should not crave evil things as they craved. Don't be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and to drink, and yet they stood up to play. Verse 11, these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall, for no temptation is overtaking you, but such is common to man, and God is faithful will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. With the temptation will provide a way of escape also that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak to you as wise men. Judge what I say. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless in sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break the body of Christ? Since there's one bread, we are... Many one body, we will partake of one bread. Look at the nation of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifice share at the altar? What do I mean? That the thing sacrificed to idols is anything? No. That the idol is anything? No. But I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. I don't want to become sharers in demons. Cannot drink the cup of the Lord and cup of demons. You cannot partake at the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Or do you provoke the Lord with jealousy? All things, verse 23, are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things, what? Edify. 
So therefore, let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. Go down to verse 30. Well, I'll just keep reading. For in anything that is sold in the meat market without asking questions for conscience sake. For the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. He's just saying, listen, there isn't anything unclean. That's what he said in Romans 14. Eat it. If the one of the unbelievers invites you, unbelievers. Okay, this is somebody who isn't saved, right? Somebody from the pagan world who invites me to come to dinner. They invite me and you wish to go eat anything that's set before you. No problem without asking questions for conscience sake. But if anyone should say to you, this is meat sacrificed to idols. Don't eat it. Paul says, don't eat it. For the sake of the one who informed you and for conscience sake. You say, okay, for the sake of them and for myself. No, no. If Notice what he says. If anyone should say to you, this meat is sacrificed, let's do it for conscience sake. I do not mean your own conscience, verse 25, but the other man's. For why is my freedom judged by another man's conscience? I partake with thankfulness. Why am I slandered? Paul gets into the reality that Corinthian church was doubting what he was saying. So whatever you do, whether you eat or drink or whatever it is, do it to the glory of God. Give no offense. No offense. There's that same word of Rome, of Matthew chapter 17. Don't give an offense. Make sure the gospel is clear. Live the gospel with clarity. Live the gospel with clarity, either to Jews or to Greeks or even to the church of God. See, outside the church, inside the church, make sure that your life is such that when others see it, they see the clarity of the gospel. That means you have to forego freedom, so forego it. So whether it's Matthew, whether it's Romans 14, whether it's 1 Corinthians 10, the issue is the same. The issue is loving one another. And not all issues fit the category of being gray issues because in our understanding, both weak and strong in the faith, in our understanding, we know and rightly view them as preferences. When we view them as preferences, they're not gray area issues, they're just preferences. And we can talk about preferences and we can talk about what's good, better, and best in preferences. And so the question is, how are we to handle preference issues? How do we handle that? How do we handle issues? How do we handle acts and decisions where judgments aren't being made? Where we're not making judgments as to the spiritual condition in the life of someone else. But there's, there's still disagreement. There's what someone else does in comparison to what another does. There's still some disagreement there. What do we do about that? How do we handle that? Well, I'll give you a quick principle. Here it is. Discuss and defer, if possible. Discuss and defer, if necessary. Notice Romans chapter 14, verse 19 and following. So then, let us preserve the things which make for peace in the building up of one another. Don't tear down the work of God for the sake of food. Uh, Don't destroy what God's doing in the life of another for the sake of your own preference, the sake of your own Christian freedom. All things are indeed clean, but they're evil for the man who eats and gives offense. It's good not to eat meat or to drink wine or do anything like that by which your brother stumbles. Stumbles in his Christianity, stumbles in his understanding of what Christianity means. That's the whole context. That's the idea of the spiritual reality. The faith which you have, verse 23, have it your own conviction. Have it before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves, but he who doubts is condemned if he eats. Why? Because he's eating not from faith. In other words, his conscience isn't clear. He doesn't understand why. He's just following, and he doesn't get that, and it's not from faith. And whatever is not from faith is sin. 
You see, the issue at hand isn't sin. It's an amoral issue. But him participating, they participating in it, without an understanding of true understanding of their Christian faith as it relates to that, that's sin. And you let them into it. In verse 13, Paul says, stop judging each other. And now here in verse 19, he says, we ought to be doing what we ought to be doing is pursuing the things which make for peace and building up of one another. Stop judging one another. Rather, pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Notice, notice the things that make for peace don't just happen. Notice they don't just happen. They are pursued. Pursued. In other words, you just can't sit back and go, okay, well, peace will happen at some point. No, they are pursued. In other words, any type of behavior that promotes division, that promotes the tearing down, needs to be changed so that there's peace. That peace comes as we strive to build up each other. That's the outworking of love. And that implies that judging each other only tears down. Judging each other only brings division. This is why Paul's so emphatic about it and brings it up right away. Stop judging one another anymore. Why? Because it brings division. Dealing with these things is, is, and the building up of it is a process. It's a process. Building doesn't happen in a moment. No house is built in one step. I got an entire neighborhood being built behind me, and I haven't seen any of those houses come up in one step. Even the houses that they pre-manufacture and drop in a place and seems like in an overnight were manufactured in multiple steps somewhere else. There's a lot of discussion that takes place in that process. So when we're building one another up, we have to have a process, a process of understanding, a process of the design and why it works, something accomplished through much discussion. That's how it is with our preferences. We have to have much discussion. Much discussion has to take place. And humble, we have to be humble. We have to be like Christ. Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ, Philippians 2. We have to have that humble attitude and talk with each other so that we can gain a biblical understanding of why we do what we do. We're not having a discussion in order to change somebody else to our view. No, we're having a discussion in order that we both will come collectively to an understanding of what Scripture teaches and so that we have a right understanding in our own hearts as we look at our own life and our own living. That's how we live. That's how we rightly build up rather than wrongly be a stumbling block. We need to recognize, folks, we need to recognize this about our Christian freedoms. None of them should be so tightly held, so tightly viewed, so strictly in our mind that in our doing or not doing them, they tear down the faith of somebody else. That's what Paul says. Don't tear down the work of God for the sake of your food, for the sake of food, right? He's dealing with meat. Sacrifice to idols. Don't, we could put freedom in there. Don't tear down the work of God for the sake of your own Christian freedom. Don't do it. To eat or not to eat requires careful consideration so I don't cause offense. I have to consider. I have to think about it. I have to weigh it through. Remember, You and I, we don't live for ourselves. What we do or what we do not do affects others. We sometimes go outside the building on Sunday and Sunday's over and we go, okay, I can get back to life. Wrong, wrong thinking. You're not just a Christian today. You're a Christian every day. You're a Christian at every hour. You're a Christian at every moment. You're a Christian with your wife. You're a Christian with your kids. You're a Christian with your coworkers. You're a Christian with the people in the grocery store, with the people that you're on vacation, you're a Christian all the time. What you do affects others. Gives them a picture, picture of what the gospel is. 
So what's the conclusion? What's the conclusion of all this that Paul says? Verse 21 to 23, it's good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. The faith which you have, right? The maturity that you have in the faith have as your own conviction before God. Paul's not saying change your conviction. He's saying, listen, your conviction is based upon a conscience as it's bound to the word of God. Live by that conviction before God. Happy are you when you don't condemn yourself from what you approve. But careful. Because the one who doubts is condemned. If he does it, if he does it without understanding, if he goes against his conscience because he's eating not from faith. What isn't from faith is sin. You see, we could sum it up this way. Refraining from exercising our Christian freedoms so that the weak in the faith do not spiritually stumble is how we are to live. Refraining from exercising our Christian freedoms so that the weak in the faith do not spiritually stumble is how we are to live. The conscience of the weak has to be protected. It has to be protected. And encouraging a weak conscience to go against itself is sinful. So better to exercise your freedoms privately before God than to potentially cause someone else to fall. By not claiming rights, I have a right to do this by humbly making allowances for views of others. That is acceptable to God. Which isn't it interesting that that's exactly what Paul says. Don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. So happy is the Christian who considers the faith of others. Quietly, before God, lives in light of his own understanding as his mind is renewed by the truth. So let's be careful how we live. Let's be careful how we carry ourselves. Let us be as Christ. Let us be like Christ. Let us be, as Paul said to the churches, imitators of God and think of others more highly than ourselves. We do that, the world will know. They will know that we are disciples of Jesus Christ when we love one another. Won't you pray with me? Heavenly Father, once again, we are faced with a challenge. <clears throat> Not because your word is difficult because the sin of our own hearts doesn't want to submit. We have a hard time submitting. Oh, it's easy for us to submit with words, but to submit indeed is very difficult. But we know we are convinced by your word that through the power of the spirit, we can, we can submit, we can submit to you forego whatever it is we must for the sake of the gospel so that we are not the Holy Spirit in the lives of other people. Lord, if that means we have to forego things we enjoy, so be it. Let us think of one another first. Be introspective about what we're doing and how it may hurt the spiritual condition of others before we ever Think about freely exercising it regardless of what anybody else thinks. Lord, we know you love us. You gave your son to die for our sin. The gift of life, forgiveness, justification before you. You paid it all. 
we sing those words. I wonder sometimes, do we believe them? Lord, help us live out our faith. Live it out to the glory of you, thinking of one another and how to build one another up. That your church would be a, a strong beacon, a place where the world would know that we are your disciples because we love one another. That you would be glorified in and all. Your name would be lifted up, that Christ would be known. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.